Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Ina Park, who is an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine. She is also a medical consultant at the Division of STD Prevention at the CDC and medical director of the California Prevention Training Center. She is author of the new book, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STDs. We're going to be talking about her latest book in this episode, which is all about the hidden role and influence of STDs in our lives and some of the common things that people get wrong about them. So, for example, is it really true that having more sexual partners necessarily means greater risk for STDs? The answer will probably surprise you. We're also going to discuss how modern sex and dating practices, such as pubic hair grooming and online dating apps, are affecting STD rates. In addition, we'll be discussing the broader impact of STDs on us, while also breaking the taboo and stigma that surrounds them. This is a topic that people tend to have a really hard time communicating about, so I think it's really important to break down those barriers so that we can communicate more effectively about sex. This is going to be an amazing conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Ina, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thanks, Justin. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. I actually, before the show, I was talking to you about how I heard you on an NPR program talking about your book. That was how I learned about it. And so I picked up a copy and I thought it was absolutely fascinating and couldn't wait to invite you onto my podcast to talk all about it. I've actually been wanting to talk to an STD expert for a long time because I think this is such an important topic. So I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Well, and I cannot wait to dive into it with you. Now, before we dive into your book, I always like to begin by asking my guests a little bit about their professional journey. So how did you come to be a physician who specializes in the area of sexually transmitted infections? Yeah, it's not one of those things that, you know, when you're eight years old and people ask you what you want to be when you grow up, you say, oh, I want to be a, a syphilis expert. <laughs> so I first became interested in the topic when I was at UC Berkeley as an undergrad and I had an inkling that I might be interested. I, I was actually thinking about becoming a psychologist, and then I was also thinking about medicine. And I sort of combined both of them and became a peer educator and peer counselor. So I would do this post-test and pre-test counseling with you know, other students. And during that time, I had those sort of moments of intimacy and connection with another person about a topic that is really difficult to talk about. And I realized that actually, I don't have a very difficult time talking about this. And that that led me more towards the sort of direction of medicine because you have those like individual one-on-one -on -one interactions with people. And at the same time, as a peer educator, I was tasked as well with doing lots of presentations in front of groups about condom use. And even my medical school admissions essay is about me dressing up as a giant condom and in Sproul Hall at UC Berkeley and doing a demo in front of a hundred people. And so, you know, I really felt like called to work on this topic of sexual health in this arena. And so I realized that I was also willing to push boundaries, you know what I mean, to educate people about this topic and just how much work needed to be done in this area. So I didn't intend necessarily on becoming a sexual health specialist or whatnot, but I just felt called to the fact that I wanted to have these sort of intimate moments about health 
with other people and feel like I was contributing in that way. So then I went to medical school and was interested there in particularly in HPV and HPV among both gay men as well as, you know, heterosexual women. So I was studying anal HPV in those populations as a medical student, as well as studying adolescents in South America and their condom use and their sort of feelings of what we call self-efficacy or their empowerment around condom use. And so then I transitioned later to doing a residency and in family medicine where I became interested as well. Again, an HPV was calling to me and I ended up doing a fellowship at UCSF where I was researching the impact of HPV vaccination, as well as doing what we call anal pap smears for men who have sex with men living with HIV. And during that time, started work at the state health department in the STD control branch in public health. And then I never left. And here I am. Well, we're glad to have you in the field. And, you know, this is a topic that a lot of doctors find challenging to talk about. So I'm glad to have folks like you around who feel really comfortable with it and who hopefully can, you know, provide some of that mentorship to others to make these conversations easier. So let's talk about your new book, Strange Bedfellows. I'm sure some people listening might think, I already know everything I need to know about STDs. And they might wonder, how could you fill a whole book about it, right? You have mm-hmm. sex, you might get exposed to an STD, <laughs> it might affect your health, you know. So for people who might be under that impression, can you tell us why you wrote this book in the first place and why you think it's important for people to expand their knowledge on this subject? Absolutely. I mean, Part of what I wanted to do was not have a book that's just instructional to say, you know, if you do this, then this will happen, or, you know, going over the microbiology or the diagnosis or the treatment. It's not a prescriptive book to tell you what to do or to necessarily give you instructions, right? What I wanted to do was to use this book to and to use storytelling to actually combat the stigma against these infections. So yes, there's lots of information, there's lots of facts, there's lots of history, And even if you know a lot about STIs, I can guarantee you there is lots of historical information that feeds into why we have stigmatized these topics so much today. And also, there's just lots of entertaining stories about both my journey and some of the journeys of my patients. And so that was really my goal with the book, Justin, was not really just to educate folks because you can find that on the internet. Just Google, you know what I mean, the term of any STD and you'll find out all the facts. But what you can't get from the internet is you know, the real stories of what actually happens to people and how we got to where we are today with these uh, particular infections that are so common. Yeah. And, you know, for people who might be listening, thinking, oh, a book about STDs, like that just doesn't (laughs) sound really interesting. It really is fascinating. You know, I kind of, it, it reminds me of one of my favorite sex books that kind of like set me down the path of going into this field, which was Bonk by Mary Roach. Oh, yes. I love that book. Uh Your book is kind of like the Bonk version for STDs, right? And it covers the history and the research in a way that is really engaging and tells this important story. And there's a lot that you can take away from it. So I really encourage folks uh, to check it out. So there are so many fascinating things in your book that I want to discuss. But as a starting point, let's talk about a common but mistaken belief about STDs. So the conventional wisdom is that STIs are caused by promiscuity. So the Mm -hmm. more partners you have, the more risk, and therefore, the greater the odds that you'll have an STD at some point. And this idea is perpetuated in a lot of sex education courses, right, where 
they promote this idea of monogamy. That's the only way to protect yourself, you know, aside from being abstinent. Um, right. But in my own research, it's told a somewhat different story and suggests that STD risk isn't purely a function of number of partners. So for example, I published a study a few years back in the Journal of Sexual Medicine where I recruited a sample of people in monogamous relationships and a sample of people in open relationships. And I asked them a lot of things about their sex lives, including their STD history. And a lot of people would assume that, you know, when you run the comparison that people in open relationships are going to have a higher rate of STDs. But what I actually found was that there was no difference between the groups. And that finding was really surprising to a lot of people. And you tell a similar story in your book about two patients. One is a heterosexual man with two female partners in the last month. The other is a gay man who had 20 to 25 partners in the last month. And neither of them were consistent condom users. Both were tested for STIs. And one of them tested positive for gonorrhea. And Mm -hmm. most people would probably assume, well, the one with more partners was the one who tested positive. But that wasn't the case. It was the guy with two partners who tested positive and the guy who had had more than 20 in the last month didn't have anything. So what explains this? Why is it the case that people who have more partners don't necessarily have more STDs? Well, so Justin, it comes down to two factors. So I'm going to explain the first factor first, which it's not just the number of people that you have, you know, as as sexual partners, but also how you are connecting with these people in time and space. And what I mean, but not by sexual positions or anything like that, but what I mean (laughs) about how you're connecting with people is, you know, for the two patients whose examples I used for the book, one of the people, he had gonorrhea that day. And in fact, he had had multiple bouts of gonorrhea that year. And what he was doing in terms of the pattern of sexual partnering was that he would have sex with one person and then he would come back. He was going between Nevada and California, would come back to California, have sex with a partner there. And then, in a, you know, like a week later, travel back to Nevada, have sex with that partner. So it was this sort of back and forth, a concurrency of partners that actually spreads STIs when we look at on a community level, if people are having multiple concurrent partnerships, that is a surefire way to spread STIs and HIV, by the way, efficiently in a sexual network. Whereas the other guy, you know, he had been, he'd been really busy in terms of he had had lots of sexual partners, but the way he was connecting with them was more like a serial monogamy thing. Even though some of these relationships were like, you know, one night or, you know what I mean? Or just a couple of times. He would have sex with somebody and then he would end that relationship and then have sex with the next person. And he was getting tested, you know, not in between every partner because he'd had 20 partners or so in the past, I think it was two months actually. But he was getting tested periodically in between partners. And so by spacing out partners in a, you know, serial monogamous way and testing in between, he was actually at lower risk for catching an STI than this person who was having less partners but was bouncing back and forth in a short period of time. So that's the first factor, Justin. And then the second factor is really how much infection happens to be in the network that you're playing in sexually. And one thing that folks don't understand is that like, if you have a penchant for a very specific type of partner, like, for example, I only like to have sex with, you know, Asian trans women or something like that, like a very small network of people, the chance that there is concurrency where multiple partners are connecting with the same person in space and time is much higher than if you happen to be, you know, somebody who likes to connect with white heterosexual men, 
there's just more of them around, you know what I mean, in terms of distributing the risk in a community, it's just much less likely that you will have concurrent relationships. And so one thing I talk about, Justin, is how structural racism and things like mass incarceration have led to, you know, distorted sex ratios where there's much less men than women in a certain community of heterosexual folks. And literally, you know, the no, a norm has become that some men have to have concurrent relationships because there are literally not enough men to go around. So as you can see, there are factors that are way outside of just, you know, the person in front of you that are shaping how at risk a specific sex act is going to be. I think that's just so fascinating. And it's a way of thinking about STD risk that most people would just never consider. You know, when we talk about risk for STDs, it usually comes down to talking about safer sex practices and communicating with partners. But what you're saying is we need to look at this broader, you know, time and space in which sex is taking place and the networks within which you are sexually interacting. Right. And it eliminates, you know, this idea, Justin, of the shame and the blame, right? Is that if you got an STI, you did something wrong. And really, I mean, one of the studies I talk about in my book was looking at gonorrhea risk. And if you had sex with a partner at one of these six venues in the, in Colorado Springs, your risk of catching gonorrhea was 300 times higher than if you had sex in a different part of town. So literally, you know, there's no shame or blame here. There, your risk per sex act, if a condom breaks or, or something like that, or you don't use a condom, is just so much higher because of forces outside of your control. So it's just removing that kind of anxiety of like, well, I have to control everything and make it perfect or else I'm going to get an STI and that reflects something on me. Really, I'm trying to sort of normalize the fact that we don't have a lot of control sometimes over whether or not we're going to catch something. And I'm hoping that will make people feel a little bit more liberated and less stigmatized if they did happen to catch an infection that they did something wrong, because that's really not what's going on here. Yeah. Now, I mentioned that I really had wanted to talk to an STD expert. And so this is a question that I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on. Is everybody equally vulnerable to STDs. So for example, do some people just have more natural immunity to them? And are some people just more naturally at risk for them because of, say, differences in their immune functioning or some other characteristics of their body? And I ask this because I know some people who have had many STIs over the course of their lives. Sometimes it's the same STI over and over, and it might be related to networks. Yep. But I also know some people who have never had an STI before, despite being, you know, very sexually active and, you know, not always consistently practicing safe sex. And I've seen this in the literature too. For example, a study I read several years ago looked at sex workers in New York City, and they had had a lot of unprotected sex with HIV positive people and never contracted HIV. And I also read a study in the last year that looked at men who have sex with men who had all tested positive for gonorrhea. And that study found that one in five of those men, their infection spontaneously resolved within a median of 10 days without them receiving any antibiotic treatment. And that kind of blew my mind a little bit because I had always learned that, you know, gonorrhea is something that requires antibiotic treatment and that your body doesn't clear it on its own. So just in kind of like putting all of these pieces together, it has made me wonder, are some people's bodies just more resistant to STIs or more adept at fighting them off? What's your take on that? 
Oh, I absolutely agree with you. And it's not just that study of gonorrhea, Justin. There'll be a study published pretty soon looking at rectal chlamydia as well, where um, these were all men who have sex with men. And by the time they actually came for their treatment in this study, you know, about one in five had cleared their infection spontaneously. So absolutely, your immune system plays a role in whether or not you're actually going to have symptoms or not or whether or not you'll even contract the infection if you're exposed. And then if you contract the infection and it's silent, will your immune system actually clear it before you even get to a testing site? And all of those things can happen. And another example is, you know, with chlamydia and for female-bodied people, if they actually get an infection, sometimes it'll sit there for months and months and do nothing. Sometimes a person will get one chlamydia infection and end up with pelvic inflammatory disease, scarring, or infertility. So again, every person's response to getting exposed is different. And even those who get exposed, if you take 100 people and all expose them to chlamydia, whether or not some people will actually have an infection or not, you know, differs from host to host, you know what I mean, with, with each of the, you know, bacteria or viruses. Same thing with HPV or human papillomavirus. Some people, when they're exposed to a cancer-causing type of HPV, will have it, clear it, no harm, no foul. And some people will develop precancer or a very aggressive, you know, type of precancer that can progress to cancer very quickly. So it's very person dependent and you don't know personally what type of, you know, immune yeah. system you have until you go through this process of starting to have sex, starting to get tested and then realizing, wow, I'm getting a lot of STIs, you know, maybe something's going on with my immune system and I need to be a little bit more careful. Yeah, so I think what this tells us is that STDs and our risk for them, it's a biopsychosocial phenomenon, right? Because Absolutely. it depends on the environment in which sex is taking place. It depends on your body's own just sort of natural response. And it's complex in terms of whether you're likely to contract one or not and what effects it will have on your body. Right. And Justin, I just also want to point out that both of those things that you mentioned are not really things that are necessarily in your control. The yes. things that we have in our control are, you know, things like whether or not I will use a barrier or not, whether or not I might use HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, and whether or not I will get tested and how frequently I will get tested. So like just to separate what we can control and what we can't control is I think important for people who might be listening who are sexually active and thinking about how they should manage all this. Absolutely. Now, let's talk a little bit about sex detectives. You have a whole section in your book that, that talks about sex detectives, which is a term I just love. And basically what we're talking about here is STD contact tracing, where some people are tasked with tracking down other people who might be infected with an STD. Now, that seems like complicated work, especially when some people have anonymous partners. Like yep. they might not know the name or phone number or how to contact that other person. And in fact, you tell a story in your book about contact tracers essentially like going on a stakeout at a gym and, you know, yep. they're working on very limited information to try and figure out, you know, who it is that they're looking for. So can you tell us a little bit about how does contact tracing work when someone has an anonymous partner and they don't know, you know, their identity or how to, to reach them? What, what do contact tracers do in that case? Well, sometimes it leads to a dead end, unfortunately. Like back in the day, Justin, like people used to have like little black books, right? And you would mm -hmm. like have a name and a phone number of the person that you were connecting with. Now with apps, especially like if the interaction didn't go well, sometimes someone will block the person and actually not have a way to reach them. So contact tracing, I think, 
more often leads to dead ends in the age of apps like Tinder and Grindr and things like that. So that's number one. But number two, you know, sometimes even just a first name and some clues about the location where the people had sex can sometimes lead to, you know, identification by a contact tracer of the person's identity, but they have to use all types of tools like, you know, looking for other images of that person on social media to try to find the name if the person still has their profile pic, for example, from the dating app. So they have to do so much more complicated detective work. And oftentimes you don't have enough information to find out what's going on. And I'm not blaming contact tracers for the current epidemic of syphilis, but they are not able to keep it all in check with the amount of information that they currently have. Yeah. It's so interesting to, you know, think about how contact tracing has evolved over time and how the digital age has actually made it more complicated. You know, in this time when we're actually more connected than ever, it's actually harder to do the job of contact tracing, which is kind of an interesting paradox. Well, when you don't have a name, you know, that's really difficult. I mean, if you have a name, like, yeah, oh my God, I see their Facebook, you know, Instagram or whatever, but without a name, it becomes more challenging. And there's also the traditional kind of commercial data brokers, like, and also DMV lookups. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to find people if you know a name, (laughs) but if you don't, if you don't, finding the name is a complex level of detective work. And this job has not traditionally been a super highly compensated, highly skilled workforce. And now I feel like there's been an appropriation of $1.1 billion to you know, shore up the contact tracing that we started up during COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm just hopeful that they're able to raise the salaries and bolster up the training. And even then, I'm not sure how it's going to all go for the contact tracing of STIs. It's, it's, it's a, we're in a tricky place right now. Yeah, definitely. And since we're on the subject of contact tracing, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people might be curious, what is what kind of reaction do people have when a contact tracer actually makes contact with them and says, oh, hey, you might have syphilis or some other STD because you have this potential exposure. So do yeah. people tend to be relieved and grateful when that happens? Or do they tend to see it as an invasion of privacy or maybe even as an insult? What what kind of happens there? So I work primarily, I would say like 70% of my clientele are men who have sex with men. So I have people coming in to our sexual health clinic who've been contacted by a contact tracer. And so they're coming in. And the range of reactions, I would say most people are kind of on the accepting and, oh, I'm glad I was contacted sort of side of things. Where I've seen people get upset is when they believe that they are in a closed relationship and now they've been told that they've been exposed to an STI, which means that the relationship was open on one end without their consent. So those folks are generally pretty upset. And I don't see the folks for whom it's so intrusive that they're offended and they don't come in because they don't come in. But I have heard from contact tracers because I interviewed folks who'd been doing this since the 70s and then the 80s and 90s to the present day. They absolutely get the door slammed in their face. They get hung up on. One of the contact tracers I spoke to was assaulted by a partner who was so furious that they had been exposed to an STD that they actually took it out on the person who was actually delivering the information, you know, like shooting the messenger type of thing. So, you know, when an STD enters the picture, if you are feeling betrayed or upset, 
you know, sometimes those feelings then get misplaced onto the person who's actually delivering the news. But at least for my patients who are in open relationships, they're like, oh, I knew it was possible. It's fine. You know what I right. mean? And I, so I really think it's your frame of reference and your expectations going into your relationships. And all of that has me wondering, you know, how common is it for STD testing to reveal cases of infidelity that, you know, previously weren't known? And it sounds like that's something that maybe semi-frequently comes up in your line of work. It comes up all the time. And people are sometimes really surprised to say, I tested, I I didn't expect anything to be positive. And now that it is, it just leads to this whole chain of thought loops, you know what I mean, about like what that implies if a positive test is involved. So it absolutely happens. And there's a lot of counseling. So I'm going back to my college days and drawing from all of those skills about reassuring folks that it's going to be okay, that they're going to move on, they're going to have a, you know, happy and healthy sex life again. But some people really do take it hard. Yeah. Now, before we take a quick break, I wanted to talk about something from your book. This is a little off topic from what we were previously discussing, but it's something that I think almost nobody realizes, which is that reality TV shows like The Bachelor actually do STD tests on potential contestants. And it turns out that the most common reason people are rejected from that show is because they have a positive test for genital herpes. And, you know, this was another thing that just kind of like blew my mind. Like I didn't realize they're doing like STD panels on dating show contested. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts on that practice? And do you think it's a good idea or not? I mean, I'll tell you for herpes, I think it's a terrible idea. And I'll tell you why. The test that they're using for the, this is the bachelor we're talking about here. The test that they're using actually comes up with values that are either a low positive or a high positive or negative. And if you come up with one of these low positive results, just in the what we call the predictive value of the test. So the probability that that positive result truly reflects genital herpes is about 50%. So it's like flipping a coin. And then you're telling this person who wants to find love on reality TV that not only are you not going to be allowed to, but now I'm giving you a diagnosis of a lifelong viral infection, which is a false positive diagnosis. So I can tell you that that absolutely false positive diagnosis have been given out. And I really wish they wouldn't do that. Or if they insist on doing that, that they don't screen people out because of it and let them have a disclosure conversation in front of millions of viewers and let's see how the other person deals with it and how great would that be in reducing stigma? Yeah. I mean, because you never hear these STD conversations taking place in the popular media. I mean, it's very rare for them to come up. And when it is, it's, you know, this horrible stigmatized terrible thing, you know? Or it's a joke. Yeah. Yeah, Or or it's a joke. joke. And so having that, you know, sort of positive model for how does this work? Because, you know, a lot of people contract STDs, like this is a normal thing. And so we have to learn how to communicate about these things effectively. So I appreciate your advice and insights there. Now we have much more to discuss, including how STDs are linked to pubic hair grooming practices and online dating apps. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sex and Psychology Podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Promescent. Promescent is here to help you get better in bed. Check out their Vitaflux supplements, which aim to enhance sexual health by increasing libido, sexual desire, and orgasm satisfaction in men and women alike. Vitaflux can also help to increase erection strength in men and vaginal lubrication in women. 
Permescent's other sexual wellness products include their signature delay spray, which can help men last longer in bed, a female arousal gel that heightens sensitivity, and a line of personal lubricants that come in several varieties. Permescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet packaging to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at permescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. Ina Park, author of the new book, Strange Bedfellows. Now, Ina, again, like I've been dying to have an STD expert on the show because like I just have so many random questions about this topic. But <laughs> something I want to pick your brain about is this idea of STIs essentially hijacking our brains. Now, I don't recall you covering this in your book, but this is something I've read research on for a few years now. And so, for example, there are some animal studies where, uh, you know, in one case, they looked at crickets who had contracted this infection that is spread through sexual contact. It actually renders the crickets infertile, but mm -hmm. it makes them mate more and they're faster to mate, right? And so it enables or facilitates spread of that sexually transmitted infection. So, you know, it's adaptive for the virus, but, you know, bad for the crickets, right? Right. Now, in humans, there have been a couple of studies looking at this. I saw one recently looking at men who have sex with men who were infected with HIV, and they looked at whether the men were in the acute phase when they got their HIV diagnosis, meaning mm -hmm. the infection had happened recently, or whether it was something that happened later on. They'd been infected for a while. And what they found was that for the acutely infected HIV-positive men, they reported a higher number of recent sexual partners compared to the men who were diagnosed later on. Sure. And, you know, one of the speculations there was that maybe that virus is directing or changing sexual behavior in some way to facilitate its spread in humans. And, you know, I've also seen some studies looking at the link between toxoplasmosis and interest in kinky sex. And toxoplasmosis is, it's a parasitic infection that is transmitted from cats. And we know that when rodents are infected with toxoplasmosis, it actually changes their fear response. So rodents instinctually, you know, they evolved to have a fear of cats and to be repelled by the smell of felines. Mm -hmm. But when they're infected with toxoplasmosis, it creates this fatal attraction effect because it tinkers with their fear circuitry and it makes them attracted to the scent of cats, right? It, so wow. instead of being repelled by their natural predator, they're attracted toward them, right? So That's wild. The thought is that in humans, maybe toxoplasmosis is also affecting fear responses. And so maybe that opens the door to more riskier sexual activities or greater mm. interest in, you know, kinky and other sex acts that might have somewhat greater risk associated with them. So I'm just curious as an STD expert, what's your take on this idea of STDs potentially hijacking our brains and altering our sexual behavior in a way that facilitates spread of the virus? 
Well, so it's not something that I've seen a lot of literature on in human beings, but what I will say is that I think it could be possible for infections where you have a sort of systemic response. So things like HIV, which spread throughout the body, things like syphilis, which also once you get infected actually disseminates widely through all your organ systems, that I could see maybe affecting cognition or somehow changing the brain so that one was more prone to certain types of behavior. But things like gonorrhea and chlamydia or things like herpes, which are, you know, locally focused and don't disseminate widely, Mm. be harder for me to imagine that. But I love this theory. I'd heard about the crickets, but not about the toxoplasmosis. So, (laughs) you know, the truth is, is as you know, and as we've seen as well from the, you know, from the pandemic, if you get a disseminated viral infection, it can alter sometimes, you know, long-term your functioning, your, you know, your mental capacity. You know, we talk about people with long COVID having, you know, persistent sort of brain fog. It can affect your immune system, your nervous system. You know, some folks have, you know, autonomic nervous dysfunction, nervous system dysfunction after having, you know, a viral infection with COVID. So my point is, is that I don't think we fully understand or comprehend all of the ways that having a disseminated infection could potentially affect you know what I mean? Your future behavior, your future brain state. And by the way, gonorrhea can also disseminate and can actually affect, we know that it can affect the brain. It's rare, but it can absolutely happen. So I'll put a pin in that, but I, <laughs> I definitely think it's possible. Well, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate you you know, making the distinction between the disseminated infections and those that are more localized. I think that's a, a really important way of thinking about this. But now my brain is going in all kinds of directions. I'm thinking about this past year in the pandemic, and we've conducted some research that finds that you know people have gotten a little kinkier during the pandemic, but they've also yep. adopted a lot more cats. And so Yes, <laughs> exactly. What's going to happen with the toxoplasmosis <laughs> and the kinky masked sex? And yeah, there's many things that are interplaying right now. So much research to be done. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about how modern dating and sexual practices might be affecting STIs. So I read a paper a while back suggesting that the invention of oral sex is actually what gave rise to gonorrhea. And it was proposed that gonorrhea originated in the back of the throat where the nasal and oral cavities connect. And in our throats, the bacteria responsible for gonorrhea are relatively harmless. But when humans began practicing oral sex, these bacteria were transferred to the genitals. And so the idea is that gonorrhea is actually kind of this invasive species and that our sexual practices can kind of shape the trajectory of STDs. So what's your take on that? And can you speak, you know, just more broadly about how our sexual practices shape STDs? Well, I certainly, I'll just take gonorrhea because you started with that. I mean, we know that gonorrhea survives very well in the in the throat or the pharynx, right? And it is mostly without symptoms. So unless people are looking for it, they don't know that it's there. And then of course, if they're giving oral sex to a partner and then transmitting it, it can be done very efficiently, very easily. So that's the thing is, you know, if you're silent and then your host doesn't think that there's anything wrong, so they don't throw antibiotics at you. You could sit there for many months, right? Be transmitted to many people. And the thing about gonorrhea in the throat as well is it's more difficult to kill than at other locations like the rectum or in the genitals. So again, it's another survival strategy that I certainly think has contributed to its survival. 
And Justin, if we you know look at national studies of condom use, less than 10%, it's about 6% of people say that they used a condom for oral sex. And I stopped asking my patients. It was on our standard form about condoms for oral sex because they just all laughed and everyone said no. So we're like, well, just stop asking the question. I don't think suddenly we're going to have a change in sexual practices so that people are going to start using barriers for oral sex. I just don't think it's going to happen. So I absolutely think, you know, the way that, you know, the fact that lots of people have oral sex and actually even have oral sex before they have penetrative sex, either rectal or vaginal sex, means that that is going to be, continue to be an efficient way to transmit herpes, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis for sure. Yeah. And it's so true that most people don't use any kind of protection uh, during oral sex. It's funny. I remember like the first time I ever heard about using protection during oral sex, I was getting my haircut for like, I think this was like my senior prom or something in Uh high school. And, you know, while my stylist is shampooing my hair, you know, she's asking me about the prom and she's like, and be sure to use a condom even if you're doing oral because you can still get things that way. And I'm like, oh, like that was literally sex ed in the hair salon the first time I ever (laughs) heard that. Fabulous. But you know, it's something I've asked about on a lot of surveys as well. You know, I ask about safer sex practices and, you know, it's almost no one who says they use any kind of protection during oral sex. And so I've kind of stopped asking about it too, just because you get such a low response rate to that affirmatively. So I'd be curious to see if anything changes with that. I know that there are some brands right now that are trying to create new ways of having barriers during oral sex. So for example, there are actually like safe sex panties that you can wear now. So you can receive cunnilingus or analingus while you're wearing them. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen a lot of uptake of them yet, but you know, there are people who are trying to promote that. It's hard to make a product like that more fun and more pleasurable than going bare. So it's, it's a, it's a, you know, long uphill battle for that. Yeah. Now, since we talked about gonorrhea and oral sex, you know, I saw a study a while ago, and you talked about this in your book about Mm -hmm. Listerine um, potentially, you know, killing gonorrhea. And, you know, they did a lab study where they had people who had, you know, they tested them for oral gonorrhea both before and after gargling with Listerine. And those who did gargle with Listerine, I think it was for a minute or something like that. Mm -hmm were less likely to test positive in the follow-up results. So, you know, can you give us right. the down low on that? Can can Listerine mouthwash cure gonorrhea? Oh, I wish it could. <laughs> and I was and everybody would have such minty fresh breath also, right. which would be fantastic in in bars and nightclubs, but yeah, unfortunately, the results of the final study had not yet been published at the time I had to go to press with my book, but unfortunately, when when they did the randomized controlled trial, the larger study, it did not appear to reduce the amount of gonorrhea that folks contracted. And I was really disappointed because I would have loved to have a simple intervention like that. And everyone could just, you know, gargle before they went out for the night. That'd be great. Or right before they were going to have, or right before they were going to have sex and just bring it with you. But yeah, unfortunately, we're going to have to keep looking for products that might be able to work. But I like the concept and the idea because I do think it's something that people could actually do, you know, maybe before and after or just after as a post-exposure type of prophylaxis against STIs. And I certainly think people would be willing to try it. Yeah. And so I was watching this episode of, it was Drag Queen Sex Ed yeah. on, on WOW the <laughs> other night, because I'm, I'm always curious as to what people are saying about sex. And totally, Miss Banji uh, was talking about, you know, when 
douching before mm-hmm. anal sex. Like she yeah. likes to put a drop of Listerine in the last oh. swish. Oh no. Um, you know, just give it that slight blue tinge and then it makes it like minty fresh. And I'm like, oh my God, no, oh. Vanji, I love you, but that is horrible advice. Do not put Listerine in an anal douche. Bad idea. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and yes, and I have some patients who just Right. I mean, they really want, you know, they want to clean out. So they'll actually douche before they come and see me in the clinic. And I was like, no, I actually don't want you to do that because that will actually make the likelihood of getting a false negative result from your test. So you want to come, come as you are, come basically, as you are. And, into the clinic. And absolutely, people can overdo it. You know what I mean? Rinsing, rinsing out like with, with water or whatever is fine. But when you start adding things to it, especially like harsh detergents or chemicals or things like Listerine, then you're going to start causing damage to your tissues, which might actually actually make you more likely to catch an STI or HIV if you're exposed. Yeah. Don't put irritating substances like that in your genital area. And yeah. fun fact, well, this isn't so fun. It's <laughs> it's scary that Lysol actually used to be marketed as a feminine hygiene product. And women were you know, essentially doing Lysol douches back in the day. And that's like, oh my God, like, how was that a thing? And, you know, it's going to create irritation inside the body and potentially increase your risk of STIs. So yeah, don't. It's like throwing a bomb. It's like throwing a bomb inside the vagina and it kills basically all of the good bacteria that are restoring any type of balance there as well as kill. It kills the bad bacteria as well that cause odor and can cause, you know, abnormal discharge. But you're, yeah, you're essentially wiping out your entire microbiome. And then maybe if your vagina is resilient, it'll come back and repopulate the way it should. But if your vagina is at all delicate, you're going to end up in this cycle of having, you know, vaginal discharge like bacterial vaginosis. So another thing I say to people about their vagina is, you know, don't put anything in your vagina that you wouldn't put in your mouth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, chemicals and perfumes, you're not going to eat those. Don't put them in your vagina. You know, the only thing that belongs in your vagina are things for pleasure or for menstruation. And that's it. Good advice. (laughs) Now let's talk about the connection between pubic hair grooming and STIs, right? I've read a lot about this in the media and seen reports saying since people have been grooming more, that pubic lice are practically disappearing. And, you know, on the surface, like, hey, sounds good, right? We're eradicating this sexually transmitted infection. But what's happening with other STIs? And what's your take on the broader literature? How is pubic hair grooming affecting STIs? Well, so I think the issue that we're talking about here, Justin, is the damage to the tissues that can be done when you groom in this overzealous or really rushed kind of way. So by far and away, the most popular method to use is shaving because other things require more advanced planning, like waxing actually, you know, usually requires that you go somewhere, make an appointment, right? So if you are like, okay, I'm about to go out and you look down there and you're like, this is a hot mess, you you know, shaving is your quick and dirty way of sort of making things a little bit neater. But especially for folks who are not shaving with enough lubrication or if they're doing it in a hurry, you can absolutely cause damage to the skin. And I tell a story actually of a young chef that I was seeing who he was about to go out on a date and he had actually been treated for warts a few weeks ago. So he shaved really quickly, kind of dry, unfortunately. And it caused tiny little tears in his skin so that where he used to have two warts that were now gone, he ended up with 50 <sighs> because it's like tilling the soil and then spreading the seeds. So my take home, and, and also it's been linked as well to 
you know, other STIs, especially things like herpes, which can also come in through breaks in the skin. So I don't know why people have decided pubic hair is the enemy, but I am not judging folks for wanting to take it all off. But what I am saying and what my pubic hair experts who weighed in, who've, who've done, you know, lots of studies in this area is to say, if you're going to do it, give yourself some healing time. So if you think possibly you're going to be with a new partner in the evening, shave in the morning, give your skin that six to eight hours to heal, then go out and interact with somebody, you know, and bump up against them. But shaving in a, in a hurry, especially dry, and then immediately having sex with someone is a setup, unfortunately, for catching, you know, STIs through sort of broken and traumatized skin. Yeah. And also just in general, be careful with the pubic hair grooming. There are a surprising number of emergency room visits every year for pubic hair grooming injuries, often related to people using scissors to trim their pubic hair. And it's just, yes. oh God, don't use scissors down there. Be careful. Yes. So let's talk also about how are dating apps linked to STDs? You know, again, this is something I see in the media all the time about, you know, STDs are at a record high, dating use is on the rise. And so people are making a connection between the two and saying that increased dating app use is causing an increase in STIs. And, you know, we know that correlation doesn't mean causation. And so, you know, we have to be careful about making those leaps. But I'm curious, as an expert in this area, what is your take on the link between dating app use and STD rates? Well, and so I don't think it's a completely, you know, direct relationship in saying that we can point the finger at dating apps mm -hmm. as the sole cause. I really think that the rise in STIs is multifactorial, but I do think what dating apps have done is in terms of the efficiency with which you could find an anonymous hookup, it's greatly reduced the time. I mean, in the way people used to have to meet each other prior to the internet was going to a brick and mortar space, which required you to actually take a shower and get dolled up and all of that, right? But now you can eliminate all of that small talk and the need to actually go anywhere. And so the efficiency of hookups, I really think has has helped and then, you know, helped with the increase in STIs. Because I do think that some people are hooking up more than they would if they weren't on apps. The other thing that it does is, you know, when you're in a particular neighborhood and you mostly meet people in that neighborhood and hook up with people in that neighborhood, then, you know, the STI risk that you have is, you know, confined to a certain sexual network, right? When you are using an app and you happen to be at Starbucks and you're like, you know what, I'm just going to see who's around who happens to want to hook up, or you're in a totally different neighborhood or a different state or a different country, you're now entering a completely different sexual network than you would have you know, otherwise been at at home. Mm -hmm. And you could do that anyway when you were traveling, but I'm saying the efficiency with which you can do it, I think, is also helping drive STIs as well. Yeah. Now, I could talk to you for hours because I just have so many questions about this and there's so many fascinating <laughs> things in the book. But my last question for you is a practical one about what your advice is on how people can have an easier time communicating about the topic of STIs with a yeah. sex or dating partner. Again, you know, this is a topic a lot of people are really uncomfortable with. They don't know how to bring it up. They're worried about being judged or shamed. So what's your advice on more effective communication around STIs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't have an easy answer for this, but I'll tell you what I think and what I've heard from other patients about what's worked for them when having disclosure conversations or querying people about status. I think, you know, making it simple and not saying, 
oh, I have to ask you all these questions or whatever and making it feel like an interrogation, but just saying, hey, what's your STI status? And then offering your information first to say, oh, just so you know, I just got tested last week, you know, and I'm negative and I'm wondering, you know, what's your status? So making it simple and short, um, I think is the best way to go. And also offering your sort of take and your status first can open the door, I think, to make people feel more comfortable. But it's very difficult, Justin. It's so much easier to have sex than to talk about it, especially this particular topic. And then some people, if they say, well, I don't know my status, you know, or they might be tempted to lie because they think if they don't say what the person wants to hear, that they're not going to have sex or they're going to get rejected, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's it's not easy, but I think... If you care about your sexual health and if you actually want to do what you can that's in your control to avoid STIs, then having to have some sort of conversation about status and testing is, you know, important. Yeah, it absolutely is. Thank you so much, Ina, for this amazing conversation. It was really a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and to get a copy of your new book? Sure. So they can come to my website, which is Ina Park, all one word, dot net, or I'm on Twitter at Ina Park MD. And the book is available where all books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, bookshop.org to support your local bookseller. So yes, come and check me out. I'd love to connect with folks. Yes. And be sure to pick up Strange Bedfellows. It's a fascinating read. Thanks so much again for your time, Ina. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.